welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the hepatobiliary module from the General Surgical Curriculum, and our operation or topic we'll be covering today is chronic liver failure. So chronic liver failure is a gradual and incremental loss of liver cell mass or function due to chronic or repeated cell injury and attempts at repair. These attempts at repair lead to fibrosis and scarring, leading to the clinical condition of cirrhosis. And macroscopically, this usually leads to a small, shrunken, irregular liver. The causes of chronic liver failure are pretty broad. In general, we can split them up into viral, toxins, autoimmune, and other causes. The common viruses are hepatitis B and hepatitis C virus. Common toxins are alcohol. Autoimmune causes include primary biliary cirrhosis, primary sclerosing cholangitis, and autoimmune hepatitis. And other causes include things like Wilson's disease, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, and hemochromatosis. The liver is a complex organ that has a number of different metabolic and physiological functions for the body. In chronic liver failure, the ability for the liver to fulfill these functions is reduced, and that's why we see the clinical consequences of liver failure. So let's go through some of the pathophysiology of chronic liver failure. So one of the roles of the liver is in carbohydrate metabolism. So it's part of the Cori cycle of carbohydrate metabolism where the liver converts lactate to glucose. So glucose is used in skeletal muscle and broken down to lactate, which then travels to the liver and that lactate is then used to make glucose. So in liver failure, when this process is interrupted, you end up with lactic acidosis because that lactate is not being utilized and hypoglycemia because the liver is not able to help with gluconeogenesis. The liver is also important for protein metabolism. The liver breaks down proteins and amino acids and it clears nitrogen. So usually the gastrointestinal tract uses amino acids for fuel for enterocytes, and this process creates the byproduct of ammonia. And the ammonia typically will travel to the liver via the portal system, where it's detoxified into urea and then excreted in the urine. In liver failure, the ammonia builds up, and this can lead to encephalopathy. Hepatic encephalopathy is a reversible neuropsychiatric syndrome, which is characterized by cerebral edema, raised intracranial pressure, and a risk of brain herniation and death. And the treatment for this condition is clearance of the ammonia in the gastrointestinal tract by giving patients lactulose, so stopping that ammonia from actually getting to the liver and then into the systemic circulation. The liver also has an important role in coagulation. The liver synthesizes clotting factors as well as anticoagulant factors and fibrinolytic proteins. So there's both an increased risk of bleeding but also an increased risk in thrombosis when you have a liver that's not working properly. 
the increased risk of bleeding mostly has to do with impaired um, bile salt excretion, which impairs the absorption of vitamin K, and therefore the vitamin K-dependent factors 2, 7, 9, and 10 are reduced. So there's an increase in the INR and an increased bleeding risk. On the flip side of that, the liver synthesizes protein C and protein S, which are anticoagulant factors. And so if you don't have sufficient numbers of protein C and protein S, then you have a tendency to clotting. The liver also clears activated clotting factors, anticoagulants, and fibrinolytic proteins. So if these aren't being cleared in the liver, these are circulating as well, which will, again, impair your ability to have normal coagulation. So basically what I'm trying to say is although a patient may have a really high INR, actually they may be at increased risk of clotting as well. And so you need to be considering that, especially if you're operating on a patient with liver failure and not being worried about giving them DVT prophylaxis, for example. The liver also plays an important role in the immune function of the body. It plays an important role in the body's ability to phagocytose bacteria because it produces the proteins, the opsonins that actually facilitate this. It also creates acute phase proteins such as CRP, which is important in the inflammatory reaction to infections. And the liver also plays an important role in the innate immune system as it contains Kupfer cells, which are part of the reticuloendothelial system of the body. And so loss of the function of the liver can also interrupt the innate immune response to infections. The liver, as we all know, is also an important component to metabolism of a number of medications. And so in liver failure, you need to be mindful that medications that are metabolized in the liver will not have normal um, mechanisms of actions and may build up. So these are things like opioids and benzodiazepines that will have a prolonged half-life. The other thing to know about chronic liver failure is that it results in a hyperdynamic circulation. The increased intrahepatic vascular resistance and portal hypertension leads to vasodilation of the splanchnic arterial system, so the arterial system in the gut. This leads to a reduction in the effective arterial blood volume or circulating blood volume. And the compensatory mechanisms for this is that there's an increase in cardiac output and imbalance of neuroendocrine mediators, so activation of the renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system that leads to salt and fluid retention in order to increase the plasma volume to restore the effective arterial blood volume. As the liver failure worsens or in settings of decompensated liver failure, the increased cardiac output and plasma volume increase is insufficient to normalize the arterial blood volume. And so you get further activation of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system and increased um, vasoconstriction of vessels in order to increase the blood volume. And the sodium and water retention gets worse and the patient ends up developing ascites. And then this eventually will result in renal failure because of the decreased um, flow through the kidney and vasoconstriction. And this is how hepatorenal syndrome develops and how renal failure occurs in liver failure. The liver also makes proteins that are found in the blood. 
So albumin is made by the liver and is important for regulating blood volume and the distribution of fluids in the body. If there's low levels of albumin, then this means the fluids can leak out of the venous and arterial systems, causing um, swollen legs and ascites. The other thing that the liver does is breaks down unwanted substances. We've already mentioned ammonia and drugs, but the liver also uses bilirubin to make bile salts. And if the liver is not functioning well and it's not making bile well, then the bilirubin can build up in the blood and cause jaundice. The last consequence of chronic liver failure that I wanted to mention is portal hypertension. Portal hypertension, as the name suggests, is a situation where there's increased pressures in the portal venous system. A normal portal vein pressure is between 3 and 5 millimetres of mercury. Portal hypertension is considered when it's more than 5 millimetres of mercury, and complications start to occur when it's more than 10 millimetres of mercury. We measure the portal vein pressure by measuring a hepatic vein pressure gradient, which is the gradient between the hepatic and the portal vein. And this is an invasive procedure where they cannulate the jugular vein usually and put this down through the IVC into the liver and they blow up a balloon and they measure the pressure on either side of the balloon. The causes of portal hypertension can be considered as pre-sinusoidal, sinusoidal, and post-sinusoidal. So the pre-sinusoidal causes of portal hypertension include portal vein and splenic vein thrombosis, as well as some rarer causes of pre-sinusoidal portal hypertension that actually affect the intrahepatic pre-sinusoidal spaces. And these are things such as congenital hepatic fibrosis, sarcoidosis and schistosomiasis infections. Sinusoidal causes are essentially all of the chronic liver failure problems. So um, cirrhosis from viral infections, alcohol, PSC, all of those causes we talked about earlier. But you can also get non-cirrhotic sinusoidal portal hypertension due to acute alcoholic hepatitis. And then post-sinusoidal are things such as um, Bud Chiari syndrome, constrictive pericarditis, a caval web, or intrahepatic veno-occlusive disease. The pathophysiology of portal hypertension is that there's a combination of two things. There's both increased vascular resistance to portal flow, which is usually due to architectural distortion, and it's contributed to by vasoconstriction and an increase in the vascular tone that occurs due to imbalances between the endogenous vasoconstrictors and a reduction in the vasodilator nitric oxide within the liver. And the second thing is that there's increase in the portal flow. And this is due to that hyperdynamic circulation I just talked about. So because of the splanchnic vasodilation, this increased flow into the liver and the whole point of the treatments we'll talk about in a minute for reducing portal hypertension are aimed at reducing this increase in splanchnic blood flow. The consequences of portal hypertension is the development of portosystemic collaterals or varices. 
So basically, because of this increased pressure, it has to decompress somehow. And this results in the shunting of blood through portosystemic collaterals, so where the portal system and the systemic system meet. So this can be through the cardia of the stomach and the esophagus with esophageal varices, at the stomach through the left short gastric and gastroesophageal veins, via the retroperitoneum to the peritoneal venous tributaries, which communicate with the gonadal, lumbar and paraduodenal veins, at the rectum and with the paraumbilical veins. So how do we diagnose liver failure and what might you see on investigations? Liver failure can be diagnosed with a combination of history, examination and investigations. On history, you may have a history of the cause of the liver failure. So that may be a hepatitis B or C infection or heavy alcohol use or a known condition that can contribute to the development of chronic liver failure. On examination, there are some certain features that they like to talk about for chronic liver failure. On the hands, you may see clubbing, leukonychia of the nails, palmar erythema, Jupiter's contractures in alcohol abuse, and the hepatic flap of hepatic encephalopathy, also known as asterixis. On the arms, you may see bruising if the patient has clotting abnormalities, and if you find a number of spider nevi, this can indicate cirrhosis. On the face, in the eyes, you may see evidence of Kaiser Fleischer rings, which happen in Wilson's disease, a copper storage disease that can cause cirrhosis. You want to feel the parotid gland, as parotid enlargement can be a sign of chronic alcoholism. And although it's disgusting, you may smell the breath of the patient to smell for feta hepaticus, which is a sweet smell that can indicate severe chronic liver disease. Next, we have the chest. Patients with chronic liver disease, especially due to alcohol, can have evidence of gynecomastia. And then on the abdomen, you may see evidence of distended abdominal veins, such as caput medusae. There may be evidence of abdominal distension due to ascites with shifting dullness. You may be able to feel the liver edge, which will be nodular, and there may be evidence of splenomegaly, which is a sign of portal hypertension. Other investigations that can be done for chronic liver failure include blood tests. Liver function tests can be measured and the different enzymes measured can give you an indication about the cause of the liver dysfunction. So for example, the AST and ALT are released when hepatocytes are killed or damaged. And this can be due to a acute hepatitis, ischemic injury, severe sepsis, or due to malignancy. The ALP is released from the biliary epithelium, so that can go up with cholangitis and biliary obstruction. And the GGT goes up with both hepatocyte and biliary epithelial injury. So this can go up with cholangitis, obstruction, and commonly with alcohol excess. 
In terms of diagnosing chronic liver failure, though, you more want to be looking at the functional um, action of the liver, which can be measured in different ways. So you may measure the INR, looking at the function of the vitamin K-dependent clotting factors. You can measure the serum proteins and albumin, which are created by the liver. You can measure the levels of ammonia in the blood, which will correlate with the clinical picture of hepatic encephalopathy if they have it. And you can measure the bilirubin level, which the liver uses to make bile salts. Imaging can also be done in chronic liver failure, and there are certain findings that are pathognomonic of cirrhosis. So frequently in advanced cirrhosis, you'll see a shrunken nodular liver, and you can see a hypertrophy of the chordate lobe and often the lateral segments, so segments two and three, with an atrophy of the posterior segments six and seven of the right lobe. Imaging is not reliable in terms of differentiating the underlying cause of liver failure, however. So some of the imaging modalities that may be done include an ultrasound. This can show surface nodularity, a coarse and heterogeneous echo texture, and the segmental hypertrophy and atrophy, which I've just mentioned. You may also see on ultrasound signs of portal hypertension. So this can be an enlarged portal vein, slow or reverse flow into the portal venous system, portal venous thrombosis. There may be an enlarged superior mesenteric and splenic vein. And you may see other features such as splenomegaly, enlarged veins around the liver and the abdominal organs, and ascites that can all suggest portal hypertension. CT scans can also be done, which will again demonstrate a small nodular liver. There may be evidence of portal venous dilatation or um, splenic vein or superior mesenteric vein dilatation and those same signs of portal hypertension with um, splenomegaly, portosystemic collaterals and ascites may also be seen. Another type of scan that can be done looking for chronic liver failure and the degree of fibrosis is called a fibro scan. And this is a type of ultrasound scan that is using a technology called transient elastography. And basically it's just an ultrasound, but it measures the hardness or stiffness of the liver. And this hardness or stiffness can be used to estimate the degree of hepatic fibrosis. It's often used by the gastroenterologist to monitor patients with chronic liver disease, including as a guide to their prognosis and if they need further management or treatment. And the last investigation that may be used for chronic liver failure is a liver biopsy. This can be done percutaneously or at time of um, surgery for other reasons in order to gain a histopathological diagnosis of cirrhosis and chronic liver failure, as well as can help determine the cause of the chronic liver disease if that hasn't been determined. So let's talk about the severity classification systems for chronic liver failure. The two main ones I think I'm going to know about for the exam are the Child-Pew-Turcot score 
and the MELD score, which stands for Model of End-Stage Liver Disease Score. The Child Pew score basically considers five different factors in order to grade the patient to Child Pew A, B, or C. It looks at the bilirubin level, the albumin level, and the INR level on the blood, as well as the clinical features of presence of ascites or presence of hepatic encephalopathy. In terms of bilirubin, you get one, two, or three points. For if the bilirubin is less than 34, you get one point, two points if it's 34 to 50, and three points if it's over 50. For the albumin, you get one point if it's more than 35, two if it's 28 to 35, and three if it's less than 28. For INR, you get one point if the INR is less than 1.7, two points if it's 1.7 to 2.2, and three points if it's more than 2.2. For ascites, you get one point if there's no ascites, two points if the ascites is managed with medications, and three points if there's refractory ascites. And for hepatic encephalopathy, if there's none, you get one point, two points if there's grade one to two, hepatic encephalopathy, or if it's suppressed with medications, and three points if there's grade three to four or it's refractory. And so if you have a score that's between five and six, then you're a child pew A. If it's seven to nine, then it's child pew B. And if it's 10 to 15, then it's child pew C. And these scores correlate with the one-year survival of patients. So for child PUA, the one-year survival is 100%. For child PUB, it's 80%. And for child's PUC, it's 45%. The other useful thing about the child PU score is that it can be used to, um, I guess, assess their risk of mortality following abdominal surgery. So for patients who are child PUA who are undergoing an elective operation, the 90-day mortality is less than 10%. But if it's an emergency operation, that can go up to 20%. For child pu B, if it's an elective surgery, the mortality is 20%, and this rises to 30% for emergency surgery. And for child pu C patients, elective surgery 90-day mortality is 50%, and this rises to 80% for emergency surgery. So this can help you with your operative decision-making around whether or not to operate on a patient with liver disease. The MELD score, Model for End-Stage Liver Disease, was initially developed as a score for liver transplant assessment, but this can also be used to assess the severity of chronic liver disease in patients with cirrhosis or chronic liver disease. The MELD score is a little bit harder to remember It's a logarithmic formula that takes into consideration the serum bilirubin, the INR, and the serum creatinine, and it gives you a number that sort of ranks patients, I guess. If you have a MELD score of 6 to 9, the 90-day mortality following abdominal surgery is about 12%. If it's 10 to 19, it's 30%. If it's 20 to 29, it's 75%. And if it's 30 to 40, it's a 91% 90-day mortality. 
The other thing that these scores don't take into account of very well is the degree of portal hypertension. Portal hypertension is a factor that's associated with a worse prognosis and worse outcomes from abdominal surgery in general. And so in addition to the child pew score or MELD score, whatever you want to use, you should have a look for the presence of portal hypertension. And the things or factors that are going to indicate that portal hypertension is present is platelet level less than 100, presence of splenomegaly, presence of varices, and the presence of ascites. So those four things are the things you're going to look for to determine whether or not the patient has portal hypertension. I wanted to take a brief segue into talking about the management of portal hypertension. We've already talked about what portal hypertension is and how to detect it. In terms of portal hypertension and varices, Patients who are diagnosed with liver failure should undergo a screening endoscopy at the time of diagnosis. If there are no varices present, then they usually will have repeat endoscopies every two to three years to see if they develop varices. Varices that are grade one will have a repeat endoscopy in 12 months. And if they have grade two or three varices, then they need medical management. And if they can't tolerate medical management, then they need variceal band ligation of the varices every one to four weeks until the varices are eradicated and then repeat endoscopies every six to 12 months. What do I mean when I talk about grade one, two or three varices? Grade 1 varices is where there's just small straight varices and they may extend just above the level of the mucosa. Grade 2 is when the varices are larger and they may be twisted, but they occupy less than a third of the circumference of the esophagus. And grade 3 varices is where there's very large coiled varices that occupy more than one third of the space of the esophagus. The other classification system that I've seen used is the Sarin's classification, which is where varices are categorized into four types. The first is GOV type 1, gastroesophageal varices type 1, which is where you get extension of the varices along the lesser curve. Gastroesophageal varices type 2, GOV 2, is where there's extension of the esophageal varices along the greater curve. Then there's IGV type 1, which is isolated gastric varices, varices type 1, where they're just in the fundus of the stomach. And then there's IGV 2, isolated gastric varics type 2, where there's varices in the stomach or down to the duodenum. So we've talked a little bit about screening endoscopy and what to do when you find varices. I mentioned that if a patient has grade two or three varices, they need to be managed with medical treatment. The medical treatment for varices is beta blockers, typically propanolol. And the dose is titrated pretty much as high as it can go that the patient can actually tolerate. If you can get a patient established on propanolol, then you don't need to do surveillance gastroscopies as frequently because this should hopefully treat the varices and reduce the portal venous pressures. The last thing to mention with portal hypertension is that there's a couple of 
interventional and surgical options to try and reduce the portal venous pressures. The first of these is the TIPS procedure. TIPS stands for transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt. And this is a treatment for portal hypertension where direct communication is formed between a hepatic vein and a branch of the portal vein, which then allows the blood flowing into the portal vein to bypass the liver and drain directly into the hepatic vein and back into the heart. It's done usually with a puncture through the jugular vein, as the transjugular part of TIPS would suggest, um, and is done via the interventional radiologists. The indications for a TIPS procedure include acute variceal bleeding when all of the other treatment options have failed, recurrent variceal bleeding, for ascites that is refractory to medical management in patients that require frequent drainage, if there's a hepatic hydrothorax that can't be managed medically, if there's portal hypertensive gastropathy in the presence of hepatorenal syndrome, for lower GI varices, malignant compression of the hepatic or portal veins, and Bud-Chiari syndrome, not responsive to medical management or anticoagulation. The contraindications include patients who have heart failure or severe tricuspid regurge, patients with sepsis, unrelieved biliary obstruction, and also if there's presence of severe coagulopathy or thrombocytopenia. The other thing to be aware of is that one of the complications of this procedure is the development of encephalopathy because all of that ammonia that was um, partially being managed by the liver, although not very well, will immediately be bypassing the liver and going into the systemic circulation. And so patients can develop encephalopathy. And also the increased flow back to the heart can cause heart failure. The intervention is pretty successful, but patients will often develop strictures and um, stenosis of the stent in the liver and may require repeat procedures. The other thing to be aware of is that there were surgical shunts that were done for portal hypertension, although from what I understand, these aren't done very commonly anymore. And these are literally operations to replug the portal venous system into the circulation or into the systemic circulation to bypass the liver and reduce portal hypertension. This procedure may be wanted over a TIPS procedure if there's portal vein thrombosis present. So some of the types of surgical shunts include a mesocaval shunt where the superior mesenteric vein is plugged into the infrarenal IVC and this can be done with a graft or um, directly uh, anastomosed. A portocaval shunt can be performed which is where the portal vein is anastomosed to the IVC. This can worsen encephalopathy obviously and this can be done with a, with a graft. A distal splenorenal anastomosis can be formed. So this is where the splenic vein is anastomosed to the renal vein. And this can be helpful if there is portal venous thrombosis present. So to finish off this episode, I wanted to talk a little bit about 
chronic liver failure and the surgical considerations for these patients. We're going to talk about pre-operative preparation, intraoperative considerations and post-operative management of these patients. So the first thing to consider is whether the operation is really indicated in the patient and if there's a non-surgical option. When talking about operating on a patient with chronic liver disease, you need to balance the risks of the surgery and the liver failure and the benefits of the operation. We've already talked a little bit about doing a score or severity score for these patients, which will help you estimate what their perioperative risk is. The other question is whether the patient should be transferred to a hepatobiliary or transplant unit for their surgery. And if you're going to be considering an operation, then you need to do as much pre-operative preparation of that patient as possible. So some of the things that I came up with in terms of what you could address pre-operatively for patients with chronic liver disease. The first thing is to consult and involve a gastroenterologist or hepatologist in the care of the patient. You want to try and manage any ascites that are present, and this is typically medical management with diuretics such as spironolactone and frusamide. You want to optimize that patient's coagulation. So you're going to send coagulation studies. You're going to do a group and hold and a cross match if you're worried about bleeding intraoperatively and make sure that you have some platelets and FFP on hand in case you need them intraoperatively. The other interesting thing to know is that TEG or thromboelastograms are a much better test than just our routine coagulation studies in terms of what patients with chronic liver failure may need intraoperatively. You want to test the patient's bloods and look at their electrolytes as these patients often have electrolyte abnormalities and you can replace these preoperatively. Patients with liver failure are often malnourished and will have both macro and micronutrient deficiencies. You can test for their micronutrients, so B12, folate, vitamin D, vitamin A, D, E and K and replace those preoperatively. And you want to make sure the patient's seen a dietitian, especially if you have time to plan for an elective operation. And these patients are often maintained on a low-salt, high-energy, high-protein diet. In terms of the patient with chronic liver disease, you also want to think about what the cause is of their liver failure and whether there's any specific considerations. So if a patient is an alcoholic, you may want to try to get them to stop drinking preoperatively and involve a drug and alcohol team. If they're an alcoholic, you can also give them thiamine to prevent Wernicke's encephalopathy. If they have hepatitis C, you can treat that preoperatively if you have time. And if patients have autoimmune problems and are on steroids, patients may need stress dosing for their surgery and they may need an alcohol withdrawal scale if they are an alcoholic. If the patient's previously had encephalopathy, you want to make sure that they're established on some lactulose and you want to test their renal function to make sure they don't have any evidence of a hepatorenal syndrome as they may need hydration and some medical treatments can be instigated if that's the case. The other thing you can do preoperatively is a CT scan, which can help you assess the anatomy of any varicosities that they have, and that may help you plan to avoid them at the time of your surgery. 
So let's talk about some of the things you can do intraoperatively for patients with chronic liver disease. So the first thing is you should definitely give them prophylactic antibiotics. They're at an increased risk of infections due to their immunosuppressed state. In terms of access, you want to avoid any enlarged abdominal wall veins and consider using ligatures or an energy device to secure dilated veins to prevent blood loss. In terms of bleeding, these patients, as we've mentioned, have a coagulopathy, although they may also be procoagulant. But despite that, you still need to make sure you have meticulous hemostasis and you may want to use an energy device in order to help you with that. In terms of management of ascites intraoperatively, if there's any present, you want to suction them out. Some people will leave drains in in order to drain any ascites that accumulate postoperatively with the goal of trying to reduce the risk of wound complications. If you're not going to leave drains, and even if you do, you should make sure you meticulously close all of the layers, including the peritoneum. And if you don't leave a drain, then the patient may need intermittent acidic taps postoperatively if they do develop ascites. So postoperatively, for patients with chronic liver failure, they have a risk of developing acute or decompensated liver failure. The reason for this is the stress response to the underlying pathophysiological condition that needs the operation, the surgery itself, the anesthetic medications, and the fluid and electrolyte shifts associated with surgery. You need to have a high level of vigilance of these patients postoperatively, and other precipitating factors can include development of constipation, dehydration, bleeding, and the development of infections, and patients with chronic liver disease are at higher risk of developing spontaneous bacterial peritonitis postoperatively. So you're going to want to closely monitor their blood tests, including their bilirubin, INR, their platelet level, and their liver function. And in addition to that, you want to keep an eye on them clinically for the development of ascites or encephalopathy. In terms of ascites, we've already mentioned some patients may have a drain left, or if they do develop ascites, may need acidic taps. Large ascites can increase your risk of an abdominal wall dehiscence, um, failure of a mesh hernia repair if you've done a hernia repair, and the development of hernias in general from these wounds. The fluid shifts associated with the development of ascites can also precipitate electrolyte imbalances, hypovolemia, and acute kidney injury or hepatorenal syndrome. And it can contribute to the development of atelectasis due to increased pressure in the abdominal cavity. Management of ascites is sodium restriction, diuretics, close monitoring of their electrolytes and renal function, paracentesis if required for refractory cases, and keeping a high index of suspicion for the development of spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. The other thing to watch out for, as I've mentioned, is the development of hepatic encephalopathy. If a patient does develop neurological symptoms, you also have to make sure that you rule out other causes of potential neurological decline. These could be things like hypoxia, hypercapnia, sugar abnormalities like hypoglycemia, uremia, medication side effects, 
alcohol withdrawal and delirium tremens, delirium in general, seizures, and intracranial hemorrhage. The diagnosis is made with a combination of clinical features and an elevated ammonia on the blood test, and the treatment is lactulose, which is given at quite high doses, and you want a titrate for the patient to be having two to three bowel motions a day. And the lactulose acidifies the colon and promotes the conversion of ammonia to ammonium in the bowel, which means that the ammonia is not absorbed into the systemic circulation. The other option is rifaximin, which is an antibiotic um, derivative of rifampin and works in a similar way to lactulose. As I've mentioned, these patients can develop hepatorenal syndrome, and so you want to monitor their renal function. You want to try to keep them in a euvolemic state and make sure you're replacing any electrolyte abnormalities. You would suspect hepatorenal syndrome where you have an acute kidney injury but no hemodynamic instability, no nephrotoxics or underlying parenchymal renal disease, and if there's no improvement after you take away their diuretics and give them volume expansion. It's a very poor prognostic sign if a patient with chronic liver disease develops hepatorenal syndrome. It's quite end stage. The treatment is medical with splanchnic vasoconstrictors such as terlipressin, noradrenaline or midradine and albumin. And patients may need a TIPS procedure or even a liver transplant. Chronic liver disease patients can also develop venous thromboembolisms because, as I've mentioned, they are both anticoagulant and procoagulant due to their abnormal liver function. So these patients do need thromboprophylaxis, um, especially if they've had high-risk conditions or surgeries. The other things to watch out for are increased risk of infections in general in these patients due to their immunosuppression because of the chronic liver disease. And also that their malnutrition and um, reduced protein synthesis can increase their likelihood of having poor wound healing. And then the other one to watch out for is complications that are unrelated to the surgery, such as variceal hemorrhage. So if a patient develops hematemesis or melina. A variceal bleeding episode can actually be precipitated by the surgery, especially if the patient's volume overloaded, if they've got post-operative acute hepatic dysfunction, or they develop something like portal vein thrombosis as a consequence of their surgery. And that's it on today's episode about chronic liver failure and perioperative management of patients with chronic liver failure. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope it's useful in your exam preparation. Please leave me a review, subscribe to the program and rate the program. It makes it easier for others to find. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying! Happy studying!